This is the Wealth Ability for CPAs show. Better clients, better practice, better life. Here's Tom Wheelwright. Welcome to the Wealth Ability show for CPAs, where we're always discovering how to build better clients, a better practice, and a better life. Hi, this is Tom Wheelwright, your host, founder, and CEO of the Wealth Ability Network. So, so much going on in the CPA profession, and we are changing so fast. The environment is changing so fast. We're going to have a lot of new ideas we're going to have to implement. Um, we're going to, we have to come up with them, but then we got to implement them. And today, we're going to discover exactly how to plan and then implement. Okay, so not just implement, but actually plan for implementation of these new ideas, these new things we're going to have to do as the as the environment changes for the profession. And then how do we actually execute on those? And we have the expert in this field, Dan Gardner, whose book is How Big Things Get Done. And uh, Dan, it is uh, really a privilege to have you on the show today. Hi, Tom. Nice to talk to you. So if you can, Dan, just give us a little bit of your background and why why did you write this book? Why is this important to you? Sure. Uh, I'm uh, a longtime writer. Uh, for years now, I've been writing books about uh, psychology, decision-making, planning, risk, forecasting, that sort of thing. Uh, and a number of years ago, uh, I met uh, Bent Fluvbjerg. I, I apologize to any of your Danish listeners. <laughs> Bent <laughs> is, is Danish, and his last name is unpronounceable by English speakers. It's Fluvbjerg or something, some approximation of that. But anyway, Bent is uh, a, prof a professor at Oxford University, and he's the world's leading expert on mega projects. And so we got talking about his research and so on, and what really clearly emerges from his research and from his enormous database, which I'll get into in a bit, is the fact that um, people, uh, how, how shall I summarize this? People, uh, the, 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 the projects that we produce uh, do not go according to plan. Uh, we get very, very bad results. We routinely end up over budget, over schedule, under benefits. In other words, the project's not delivering what it's supposed to be delivering. And it's happening, and this is the key point, it's happening in field after field after field. Project types that are completely different, project types that would seem to have nothing at all to do with each other, still have these really terrible results. And why is that? Fundamentally, it's because the one commonality in all project types is people. Um, the real flaw in projects and project execution, it's not technical. It's not the technology. It's not the computers you're using. It's the people and the people's decision making. And so that's the core of the book. Um, and that's why we're able to talk about when we talk about project types, we're talking about literally every type of project. All the way from, you know, as we say, from kitchen renovations to mega projects to to uh, space stations and also programs. You know, if you want to set up a program that's supposed to achieve certain ends, uh, it's all really of a piece because the core of it is human decision making and human decision making falls down in certain uh, predictable ways. All right. So let's talk about that. So um, as I understand your the fundamental premise here is that we need to. Um, plan slowly and then act quickly. Okay. Yeah. So, so 
one of the challenges, of course, CPAs have is that we tend to plan to the ends of the earth. <laughs> we like, you know, analysis paralysis, like yeah. it, you look it up in the dictionary and it says CPA, CCPA, right? <laughs> so we're, we we tend to do that um, pretty easily. Um, how do you how do you combine those two? So when you talk about plan slowly, you don't mean plan forever. What do you mean by that? Right. So this is a really essential point. Now, and it's very important for your audience in particular, most people aren't like you. <laughs> Normal human decision-making is actually pretty rapid fire. We very rapidly grasp the situation. We rapidly grasp uh, the solution to the situation. We run it through a mental simulation. We say it works we go and implement it. That's normal human decision-making. So analysis paralysis, no, maybe we need more data. Maybe we need to examine it again. What about this? What about that? That's actually fairly unusual. <laughs> but, so what's the response to that? The response to that is this. We need to distinguish between constructive slow planning and time-consuming slow planning, right? Human beings are actually quite capable, particularly in large bureaucratic organizations, are quite capable of creating planning processes that can go on forever and produce nothing of any value whatsoever. We can have meetings to the ends of the earth uh, and talk and talk and talk and accomplish nothing. What we emphasize in the book is that real planning, planning that delivers real results is not a bureaucratic exercise. It's not about creating flow charts. It's not about, you know, schedules. It's not about endless meetings. Real planning is an active learning process. And what I mean by that is this, um, human beings are really good at experiential learning, right? If you, right. you're as a child, if you touch that hot stove, you quickly learn, don't touch hot stoves, right? We learn this way really well. What we're not good at is looking ahead at some situation we've never encountered before uh, and coming up with a solution that we've never implemented before, working out all the details in advance, and then implementing it. We're actually pretty bad at that. So what you want to do is you want to create in planning, and this is the, the key point, you want to create a situation in planning where you are engaged in experiential learning. In other words, you are... I have an idea. Do I think this idea will work? Let's try it out. Let's see if it works. Let's see what happens. And when it doesn't work, you throw it out. When it does work, you pick it up and you use it again. Okay. So, so let's take a real life example that's going on in every company right now, which is this return to work, right? Yep. How do you return to work? Do you, do you stay, do you stay, um, completely, um, uh, you stay from away from the office completely, stay completely remote, or do you come into the office full time, or is there something in between? And every company is dealing with, every CPA firm is dealing with this. So when you when you look at that and you're going, how do you, so when you're sitting down doing that planning process for how are we going to do this, and you say we need to experience this, give me some ideas, give us oh. some ideas on how that would work in this situation. Well, so, uh, I mean, in an ideal situation, what you do is you create a simulation, right? It, let, let's just talk about mm -hmm. ideals, then we'll talk about your specifics. <laughs> in an ideal, what you want is the richest, most detailed simulation possible of reality so that you can then implement your possible solution and see what happens and then learn from what happens. Mm 
Um, this is how Frank Gehry produces his architecture on budget and on time. And Frank Gehry's architecture is wild, crazy stuff that nobody's ever done before, which is exactly the type of project which is most likely to right. fail. But he delivers it on budget and on time because he, he has these amazing simulations and he constantly simulates and iterates. We talk about Pixar movies. Everybody knows Pixar movies. What they don't know is that there is this amazing, long, elaborate planning process in which they are simulating and iterating, simulating and iterating constantly. Now, in a situation like this, are you going to be able to really accurately simulate your workforce and their environment? No, you're not. Of course you're not. But then the question is, can you do something that's similar to that? Can you create a situation in which you can fail safely? Right. So if I have, for example, if I have a, a new product, if I have a software uh, product, for instance, can I release this to a small group of users sure. so that they can use it in the real world and then I can get that that information back? If I can do that safely, I'm not going to jeopardize my, my company's reputation. I'm not going to jeopardize the health and safety of the people using the product. If I can do that, then I can get that experiential learning and I can fold that into my planning. For the situation you're describing, that this sounds like exactly the kind of situation where I would want to create, depending upon the size of the organization, start with this. I don't know the answer, right? You may think you know the answer. Exactly. You may have good reasons for your answer, but you don't really know until you actually implement, right? The real right. world is the real test. So I would start with experimentation, right? Um, can I divide employees up into groups can we say some of you do this some of you do that can we right approach it with the mentality of somebody who's going to experiment and be explicit with your employees and saying we don't know what the answer is we don't know what works best we want to find out what works best for the organization with for you for us for everybody and here's how we're going to find it with experiential learning um, but again, that only starts from that initial position of acknowledging that you don't really know the answer, which, by the right. way, is also not natural human decision making. Natural human decision making is, yeah, you always know. The right. answer. We, we all start with our own biases. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, for sure. OK, so so how do you know when you're ready um, that, OK, it's time to implement you, you you've gone through this reiterative process of you've experimented or, or you might just, I mean, to me, I'm thinking of this whole situation going, well, you know, why don't we say, well, what, what could happen here? Let's, let's put people in small groups and let's actually, you know, okay, you're, you're here in the office. Here's, you know, what are you experiencing? Here's what's going on. And, but you get through that. All right. How do you know at what point that you actually are going to implement and actually take action on that? Yeah, well, let's let's take a look at what I'll use Pixar because I mentioned it, um, and also because it was just so interesting doing the interviews. We interviewed Peter Pete Doctor, who's the, the three-time Oscar award-winning uh, director uh, and uh, the head of creative, uh, uh, the creative head of, of Pixar, and he told us about this process, which I'd never heard of before. He said, basically, what they do is this. And by the way, I want to emphasize the reason why you do this. Why, why do you put all this upfront work in planning? Why do you put, spend so much time and effort in planning as opposed to delivery? Why don't you just like get going quickly and put it into delivery? And the answer is it's, it's dollars and cents. If something goes wrong during delivery, that's really bad. And that's usually very expensive to fix. Right. 
and it can cause other things to go wrong and the things start to snowball and that's when things go really wrong if you're doing it in planning it's a lot less expensive it's a lot easier to fix and so pixar what they did is they said we want our directors to be creative we want them to come up with different outlandish ideas but you know what lots of your different outlandish ideas aren't going to work so how do you separate the ones that will work are brilliantly creative from the ones that don't what they do is the director starts with an idea says i i have this idea here's this short treatment shows the treatment around to lots of folks then writes a script on the basis of the feedback right and then you go and you show the script to a bunch of other folks and you rewrite the script. And you do this a bunch of times. Now, what I've described is that's what everybody does, right? And then you have a script and then right. off you go into production at this point. But this is the point at which Pixar diverges from what everybody else does. What they do is they then have artists draw a storyboard that is basically one image for every, the equivalent of every two seconds of screen time kind of thing. So you've got like a couple of thousand of these storyboards eventually, one, two, three, four. And of course, what can you do? You take a picture of one storyboard, take a picture of another storyboard, and then you put the pictures together. And what you've now got is this sort of very crude video. Right. And they put in crude sound uh, and voiceovers and so on. And now you have this very crude mock-up video of the movie that is to be. Mm. Then they show it to folks uh, at Pixar. They get people together in the theater. And they get people's feedback. And the director listens to the feedback. It's entirely up to the director what, what he or she will use or not use. Um, and then they do the entire process again. And they do it again. And they do it again. And they do it again. Now, this takes years, of course. This is a very laborious undertaking, right? But what happens is that first, you show that first cut to the audience, mm -hmm. what happens? You get major feedback, like that whole section doesn't work, this character's confusing, et cetera, right? So you get radical, radical changes in that first section. And then in the next iteration, maybe slightly less radical changes. And then in the next iteration, less radical changes. And so what's happening is, as you go along and you're refining, if this process is working and you are zeroing in on what works you will get to finer and finer gradations of change and so by the end you're talking about they're they're literally changing a word here a phrase there an image here an image there very small stuff that's the point at which they can be confident they say you know what we have worked over almost every conceivable detail and it all seems to be working and that's the point at which they say okay now we can green like this and put it into production, which is where things, of course, get expensive and, and difficult. Um, and so in an iterative process, the question is, you know, when have you done enough iteration? Right. It should answer itself because you will get into finer and finer gradations. Eventually you're going, you know, we're, we're only tweaking tiny things here. This is a very solid, reliable plan. And when you have a very solid, reliable plan, then it's time to go into production. Okay, so then when you say um, you say execute quickly, so mm -hmm. what do you, what do you mean by that? I mean how how fast are you talking about? What do you mean by just like like doing it? Right. So, I mean, let's go back to the original sin of of project management, which is basically that people want to skip fast past planning because planning's not doing. They have this attitude that planning's not doing right, and so we want to get to doing. 
And so you get shovels in the ground, you get to work right away. And there's this attitude that somehow, you know, you beat the drum faster. You know, if you think about the old Roman galleys, they have the drum to get all the rowers rowing together. Well, if you just beat the drum faster and say faster, faster, you will get faster results. Not really a, a, a wise approach. You know, that's a, that's a good way. That's a good way to break down the crew. <laughs> um, no, first of all, you want to put all that effort up front to get yourself a smooth, a, a really reliable plan. And that's the single most important contribution you can make to having a fast delivery. At that point, that reliable plan should give you some sense of what is realistic about the pace and tempo that you can maintain. And if your plan is solid, you should be following that pace and tempo. And you should not be trying to accelerate past it, right? It's not a question of beating people and demanding more. It's no, we've worked it out. We know what is feasible. We know what we can do. Now let us do it. So fast becomes a consequence of the good planning process. It's not because you're just pushing people harder. Uh, interesting. So, so one of the things you talk about in your book is that uh, we tend to look, focus on the solution instead of the situation. And uh, I, I mean, this is what entrepreneurs do, right? Entrepreneurs yeah. solve problems. So we're always looking at the solution. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm struggling with that. So, because this, and as a CPA, all we do is solve problems, right? That's what we do all day is solve problems. Right. So <laughs> what do you mean by looking at the situation instead right. of focusing on the problem? This again, to go back to, this is again, another illustration of why it's so important to understand basic human psychology. It's the most natural thing in the world for a human being to look at a situation, any situation. And what have you got? You've got a whole bunch of data, a little bunch of data points, swirling data points. But we don't experience swirling data points in that way. We experience them as a meaningful context, right? Because that's what the brain automatically does. It takes all those swirling data points and it makes sense of them. And then decision-making proceeds on the basis of the sense-making, which we have already done, which is an automatic process. Good projects stop. They do not allow that automatic sense-making to take over and then for the project to proceed on the basis of that. So let me illustrate this way. Frank Gehry, um, his most famous building is the Guggenheim Museum in Bilbao, Spain. Uh, it was the, 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 the project that really broke his reputation. He became, a, he became a giant in the world because of this project. That project actually started when regional officials in the Basque region of Spain, they came to him and they said something specific. They said, we have this beautiful old 19th century building in the center of Bilbao, and we want you to renovate it and turn it into a museum for the Guggenheim. Okay? If you, as the person who's hearing the client, simply treat this on the surface as, okay, the request is, should I do the renovation or shouldn't I do the renovation? Then the answer is either yes or no, either you're interested or you're not. But Frank Gehry never starts projects by, you know, proceeding on the basis of that surface, the surface assumptions. Instead, he always starts by asking the client the fundamental question, why are you doing this? Like, what is it that you hope to get out of the project? Because remember, we don't build bridges to have bridges. We build bridges to do something. Right. All projects are there to do something. So Frank Gehry 
asks, why are you doing this project? And these regional officials from, from uh, the Basque region said to him, well, they told him about how it was an economically depressed region. They've lost their heavy industry. Spain has a huge tourism industry, but the tourists don't go north to the Basque region. They've never even heard of Bilbao. And so what we want is we want uh, an art museum that's famous around the world that will draw tourists up to the north of Spain. And Gary went to Bilbao and he looked at the building and he said, I don't think that this is uh, suitable for a museum. If you did renovate it, it's a lovely building, but I don't think it's suitable for a museum. And more importantly, have you ever heard of a, a, a renovation becoming world famous and drawing people from all over the world, right? No, you haven't. But he said, there was a building, there have been other buildings, in particular the Sydney Opera House, that became world famous because of their dramatic design and they draw people from all over the world. So Gary said to them, if your goal is to draw tourists from all over the world to Northern Spain, what you need to do is to build a big dramatic new building. And in fact, I can show you that it's a piece of land over here by the river. And I think, and then, and then he told them about his idea. And that's ultimately the origin of the Guggenheim Bilbao, which is one of the most successful projects in human history. Hmm. Uh, it did what it was supposed to do. It drew people from all over the world and then some. Um, and it never would have happened if Gary had started from an answer, right? Should we renovate? Should we not renovate? Instead of asking questions. Always start by asking questions. Uh, by the way, this is basic, basic design theory. If you're familiar with design theory, good designers, they think that they know, everybody thinks they know what the problem is, right? You wouldn't actually be having these discussions if you didn't think you knew what the problem is. Sure. But if you go and explore with an open mind and you ask questions and say, what's your situation? What's happening here? Uh, tell me more about this you will discover things you didn't know, and that may fundamentally change your understanding of what the nature of the project should be. Well, I, I love that because um, I've always I've always said that the, the job of an advisor is to ask good questions. But what I'm hearing you say is, we really need to ask the why behind the why, right? I mean, you're saying, well, I need to do this. Then you have to ask why. And then you say, well, I need to do this. Well, why do you need to do that? Exactly, exactly. So uh, give me another Frank Gehry story. So Frank Gehry had uh, a developer, a, a famous New York developer. This is a guy who had great success developing, but not in Manhattan, over in Brooklyn and in Harlem and elsewhere. A guy who had put up giant buildings, he'd made a lot of money. And he came to Frank Gehry and he said he wanted to build a, man, uh, a building on the, on the shore of Manhattan. Okay, big, tall apartment building. Well, why are you doing this project? The superficial answer is, well, I'm doing this project for the same reason I do all my other projects. It's a for-profit enterprise. We're going right. to turn a profit. But then Frank kept talking and saying, you know, well, tell me about who you are. Tell me about what motivates you. What's driving you? And what he discovered was that it wasn't just profitability that this person cared about. What he cared about was the fact that as a real estate developer, he was in the second tier. He was over in Brooklyn. He was over in Harlem or whatever. He wasn't in Manhattan. And if you're a real estate developer, being in the Manhattan skyline is, that's the Oscars. That's the crown jewel. And so what he wanted out of this was 
prestige and status. In other words, and, and then Gary was able to translate that. Okay, if that's what's really driving you, if that's what you need for this to be a successful project, then he started reshaping the nature of the project. And he came up basically with this tall, thin, absolutely amazing skyscraper with this incredible facade that's just dazzling that had never been done before. Um, and he wouldn't have done that. That project wouldn't have evolved that way if he hadn't really understood the underlying reasons. And that's the critical thing in your point, to your point, if you ask people, why are you doing this project? You know, we, we have a story in our book about a kitchen renovation. If you had said to people, and it goes wrong because they don't ask the questions at the start. If you said to these people, why you, why do you want to do a kitchen renovation? You know, they'll shrug and say, to have a nice kitchen, you know. <laughs> Why would you ask that question? No, don't accept the quick and superficial response. Really explore. Try and understand people and their motivations. That's where the really fruitful ideas come from. Yeah, I, I think that's powerful. It's like I was um, doing a podcast a, a, a while back, and I asked somebody why they'd been in business. They said, well, you're in business to make money. I said, I think that's the consequence of being in business. That's not the reason for being in business. And so my question then was, why are you in, why are you in this business? Okay, right. so you could be in any business. I, when I was a kid, there was a pet rock business, okay? That, that, <laughs> So that that's how you can say, well, you can make money at anything, right? So 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 money's the consequence, but it's not the reason. So I, I love that that you're addressing, you know, yeah. what's the why behind the why. So um, kind of to wrap up, if you could um, give us two or three um, practical things we can do that uh, maybe even on a daily basis that would help us um, plan better and execute better. Sure. Um, well, I mean, the first thing is that asking why. In fact, I would go to back, you, you might remember Toyota's famous five whys. It's, a, you know, if you think about children, they ask five whys, you know, why are you doing that? And when you get a response, you ask why, then you ask why, then you ask why. That really gets into fundamentals. Making questioning a, a, a daily habit is a very powerful thing. Number two, simulate and iterate. The idea that, you know what, we don't know you know, until we actually do something in the real world, we don't know. So what do we do? What do we try and do to advance our knowledge and make ourselves more successful in, in, in that final effort in the real world? Simulate and iterate. Constantly think in terms of simulation and iteration, experimentation. Again, it comes from a healthy, uh, healthy questioning um, and an acknowledgement of what we don't know. Uh, and number three, what we haven't talked about, by the way, is when it comes to the execution, teams. Teams have to have aligned incentives, which very often does not happen on big projects. They have incentives that are across purposes, and that's a disaster. They have to have aligned incentives. They have to have an aligned vision everybody has to share. They have to understand what's the final goal. Why are we doing this? Again, to go to the why. Why are we doing this project? They have to have that, and they have to have a sense of purpose and mission. We're in this together. You have to structure the team in order to produce that pulling together, which produces happy outcomes. I love it. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Dan Gardner. The book is How Big Things Get Done. And uh, I, I would add, it, apparently it also works for little things. So it's not just big things, it's little things. And, uh, you know, I love going from the kitchen remodel 
um, to uh, you know the 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 big skyscraper, and then in between, probably there's the how do we get people back to work, and 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 what what do we do there? So thank you very much. Uh, just remember, you know, when when we do plan and and really plan slow, but plan right. It's not just slow; it's plan right. And we do things like the simulation, the iteration, like Dan's talking about. What's always going to happen is we're going to end up with better clients, a better practice, and a better life. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to the WealthAbility for CPA show. Better clients, better practice, better life. To learn more, go to WealthAbility.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.